0: Welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon, here with my friend and chavruta, your Dana our daf of the day. Masachet Chagiga, Zion, page 16. So it's another good daf. I feel like Chagiga is very rich with all these, you know, exciting statements. Here we have a discussion of demons and angels. And we have six statements about demons and three ways that they're like the angels and three ways that they're like the people. And then we have six statements that are said about people in three ways are people like like angels and in three ways we are like animals and the three ways that we're like angels um, it says specifically we have intelligence and we walk upright like angels which is an interesting comment on angels of course and we speak the holy tongue meaning Hebrew like angels who knew um, although I guess we could have surmised that. Shlosha and three ways we are like the animals. we eat and drink in the way that animals do. and we multiply. Meaning we we are fruitful and multiply like animals. and we um excre- we emit excrement is what my handy dandy translation here says, but I would say this is um and. En- uh, early version of the book, everybody poops, pardon me. Okay, and then the Gabar gets, I think, even more exciting. It says, Whoever looks at four things would be better if that person had not even come to this world, meaning never been born. So, what happens? We're talking about. One who, what are these things that you can't look at? And the Gemara is going to elaborate on them going forward. But we're talking about looking what's above the firmament, what's below the earth, what's before the creation of the world, what's going to be at the end of the world, right? And that meaning some of these like big existential questions, the Gemara says, like, ah, don't bother with it, right? And um, the Gemara says, like, yeah, you're going to, ref- you know, it, it's prohibited to reflect on these things, like, you're looking at something that's completely outside of this world altogether, but when you're talking about what happened before the creation of the world, I mean at the end of the day, basically the guy says mad hava hava, what was was right meaning it is what it is, but in the past tense and so then the Gemari says like if it already was like what's the prob what's the problem I'm thinking about it to begin with um and I think that part of what I th- I think that in this very small passage we have a really strong um existential approach within how Judaism treats, you know, the the world. And it wouldn't surprise me, except for I think it might be too early of a statement to the Gemara to really be talking and in, in response, let's say, to Christianity, but certainly over the generations following, you know, this idea that we pay attention to our existence in this world and we do mitzvot in this world and we serve God in this world and we don't spend our whole time uh, focused on you know salvation after death type of thing. Um, I think it became a calling card of Judaism, certainly over the generations, and and it's here you know, and it's source, so to speak in in the Gemara. Um, um, okay, and then the Gemara goes on to say. Um, one second, I want to get to the part. I'm skipping down a little bit. Um, the idea is that there's some of these people, right? some of the identities some of the things you're not allowed to do, that you're not allowed to think about, you're not allowed to see. So one of the questions is, one who looks at a rainbow. And the Gemara goes on, really going to talk about this a little bit after this, but also one who does a transgression in private. And I think this is a Gemara, likewise, it's seminal in terms of the discussion, the orientation to what does it mean to live as an observant Jew, or as a Jew altogether. One who commits a transgression in private, right? What is what did Ki say? It says if he's pushed away the feet of the divine presence. We've now seen this verse, rag rather, um, this verse several times. It's a verse from Ishayao. Um, the idea that the heavens are God's seat and the earth is his footstool. And the point is uh, the implication here is that somebody's going to go do a sin in private, right? The idea that you're hiding to do your sin is, you know, as if you're ignoring God because hello, isn't God able to see everything you do everywhere. Are you really implying? Are you really saying that God is absent from that place? And therefore it's as if you're trying to remove God from the earth, so to speak. Um, I think the point is, you know, A, we have a uh, recognition that there are people who, maybe everybody, I don't know, who will try to do their sins in private rather than have people look upon them askance, right? And then what does that imply? And this is, I think, part of the issue. What does that imply for how one hand, uh, how one relates to God, right? The sin is really against God, not against man, even though some sins are also have a against man component to them. And then the guy asks, you know, raises a question on this. Is that so? Meaning, is it really the case that somebody who goes to do a sin in private is ignoring or refuting the existence of God or the presence of God? Because Rav Eli, the elder said, a person who sees that his, um, his evil inclination, right? His inclination to to do something wrong is getting the better of himself. Then he should go to a place where nobody knows him. He should dress in black. And he should, you know, wrap himself in black, meaning he should dress. The implication here is that he's dressing in the way of the mortars and nobody's really going to be able to identify him per se. And he should do what he, whatever it is that he wanted to do that he's all caught up in. And in that way, he's not actually desecrating the name of God in public, meaning if he would do this same activity in his, you know, hometown amongst the people who know him, that would be a desecration of the name of God. But if he can't get past the desire to, to do this sin, then sometimes you ha- the the is making the point here that sometimes doing that sin in private is actually the preferable way to go. So the Gemara resolves this. Um, The difference here, the Gemara says, is the person who's doing the transgression in public is not concerned about, uh, is in a a situation where he is he is able to overcome his there right? He could have o- overcome his inclination to do the sin, and he just didn't bother, right? As compared to somebody who is discovering that they're simply incapable of overcoming themselves, and therefore they should take themselves to private. Meaning, the first case was one where he could have managed otherwise, and so therefore it's a desecration, um, which I think makes sense. But I am more interested, honestly, in the recognition that. A, there can be an inclination to do a sin, and B, the rec- like. How how is one to manage that? How is one to conduct oneself oneself as as best as possible? You know, given that we have we are human and we have failings, and we unfortunately sometimes have inclination to sin. Um, and then the next bit goes on to talk about the rainbow, which again is like, aren't rainbows beautiful? And your Dana, you mentioned this the other day. I think that um, you know the idea that. A rainbow sometimes is a negative, um, a negative sign because it's a an acknowledgement that God um, promised not to destroy the world again uh, by water. And then, but then the idea is that if you see a rainbow, then you, you know, it isn't the reminder that God promised not to destroy the world again by water? But if He hadn't made that promise, He would be doing so. Um, that's you know the standard uh, concern about a rainbow in this place in this Gemara here. Um Amenalf it says, you know, the appearance of the rainbow was like the appearance of um Kavod Hashem. That is the idea that this is there's the glory of God. Again, verses from Yacheskel, we are, you know, encountering a good bit of Yacheskel's presentation of God. And then you've got a concern of, you know, you're looking at the splendor of God, and then this is a different kind of concern about the rainbow, not because of the destruction of the world and the covenant. That is implicit in the sign of the rainbow but that there is glory to the rainbow and that when you look at that glory you are at risk of you know looking too closely so to speak at kavod hashem you're looking at the glory of god and and that takes you too far right meaning that kind of brazenness is is a desecration also again of god's presence which again i don't know that i have like a thematic point here or something like that that will tie everything neatly together but I do think this idea of um, going back to where I opened, that, there, that people have that which connects them to the animals, right? That's the, the baser nature and the inclination to sin. And then there's also this idea that we're going to elevate ourselves and you know get as close to the, the glory of God as possible. Uh-oh, but don't look at the glory of God because that would make you you know better that you had never been born because that is how bad that desecration can be. I think it does kind of tie together into what is our humanity.
1: Well, I think these are the types of gemaras that, you know, express to us that a rainbow is not necessarily a good thing. We feel ambivalent about rainbows. And I think that comes through here. Uh, You know, the idea that if you look at one, uh, even though it's a a reminder, it's that breed, but you still could harm yourself. They're not really all rainbows, I guess. Ha ha. Ha ha. OK, I'm going to move on again. This is one of these steps. We could have read everything. The Mishnah on this staff is a very key Mishnah because the Gemar- the Mishnah, basically, we're going to get back to what we really were talking about in the first parak, which is about uh, festival, you know, offerings that took place during the Chagim um, and this uh, practice that was done that's called smicha. And the idea essentially was, is that any private offering uh, that somebody brings, someone has to do smicha on it, which means that the owners basically put their hands on the animal itself. You saw later on in the DAP, there's a discussion about whether or not you have to put all your weight on the animal. But the idea is, is that if you support your the, your weight on the animal itself, the question is, is, are you allowed to do this on Chag or not allowed to do this on Chag? Because maybe by supporting your weight on the animal, it is like riding an animal on Yom Tov, which one is not allowed to do. We actually saw this <coughs> originally in Masachat Beitza on DAP, Lamed Vav, amed But what's interesting about this particular machlokas is is that this is considered to be sort of the first machlokas that we ever see, right? And if you, and the other thing that's interesting about this Mishnah is is that if you look in Paragal of Avot, which is, uh, you know, an ethics of the father, which essentially gives a complete, tight, chronological um, uh, history of oral law, right? It starts with that famous Mishnah of you write Moshe. Kibel Torah, me Sinai, right? Yoshua, uh, Moshe gets, excuse me, the Torah from Sinai, gives it to Yeshua, Yeshua to the Zakanim, the Zakanim to the Neviim, and the Neviim to Anshe Knesset Hagdola. Then the end of Anche Knesset Hagdola is Shimon Hatzadik. And then the third Mishnah, and that's the second Mishnah in that pair, is a saying of his. And then the third Mishnah in parag is Antigonus Ish Socho. And then after that, we go through five pairs basically. And these are called the, the zugot, they're the pears. And um, this is sort of pre tan This is before the Mishnah. The fifth of all the pairs is uh, Hillel and Shammai. But if you read this Mishnah, you know there's a little surprise there and that it wasn't always Hillel and Shammai. But classically, when we talk about the history of Machloket, where Machloket comes from, how can we have Machloket if we say it was one Torah, if you think about the uh, you know the, the uh, Gemara that we did on Chagiga, Daf Gimel, um, that you know, it's one Torah given by, uh, from one God given to one shepherd being Moshe Rabbeinu, this is classically what we say is the first time that we see Machloket. And what's interesting about it is it begins in the generations where there's two rulers, where there's a an Nasi and where there's an Abedzin. And that's where you start to see Machloket sort of creep in to our tradition. And so basically the Machloket is over do you do smicha on Chag or do you not do this practice of smicha on an Chag? And again, if you feel you don't do this practice of smicha on Chag, it's because you feel that, you know, doing smicha, putting all your weight on the animal is like riding an animal and therefore that would not be allowed on, uh, on Yom Tov. Um, so the missionaries reads as follows, right? Yosef ben Yoezer Omer Shaloli smoke, right? So Yosef ben Yoezer says we don't do smicha. Yosef ben Yochanan Omer smoke whereas Yosef ben Yochanan says we do. That's the first generation of the Zugot. Yoshua um, ben Prachia Omer Shaloli smoke, Nitai Harabeli Omerli smoke. Right? So Yoshua ben Prachia says, We don't do smicha, and Nitai says, We do do smicha. Yehuda ben Tabai Omer Shaloli smoke, Shimon ben Shatach Omerli smoke. Yehuda ben Tabai says, Don't do smicha, Shimon ben Shatach says, You can. Shmaya Omerli smoke. So now it's interesting, the order gets changed a little bit for the first three pairs. The first one says not to do smicha. The second one says to do smicha. In the fourth generation, we have Shemaya says to do smicha. omer And Avtalyon says not to. Hillel Menachem lo Okay, and now we have that there is this pair of Hillel and Menachem. Now, we always know, we always thought that, no, it was always Hillel and Shammai. But actually, there was menachem. And later on, the Gemara explains. Uh, I'm not going to read it inside because, again, there's just so much to to read here what actually happened to Menachem, right? And Nabai says, Yatza he left to join literally means like a bad society. It may mean he, remember there were a lot of these like sectarian groups that maybe he went to one of those. He left to enter the service of the king, right? So, uh, you know, what exactly, uh, what, what exactly does that mean? That he went to the court of the king or became a soldier or something like that. So just pay attention to that piece of the Gemara later on. But the idea is, is that in that fifth Zug, there actually was no Machloket. Menachem leaves, right? Yatsa Menachem, Shemai Shamay comes, and then Shamai Omer Shaloli Smok. And Shamai says, don't do Smichan, Hillel Merli Smok. Notice the order also gets changed a little bit. Shamay comes first before Hello, whereas with Hillel Menachem, it's is before Menachem. Um, and that's also interesting because we know that sort of when we think about the classic machlokas, it's always Hillel and Shamai, right? And then you sort of have, you know, but originally in that generation, there actually was not going to be any machlokes at all. And then finally, the Gemaret, the Mishnah concludes by saying, Harishonim Hayud Nasim, the first of each of these pairs was the Nasi, Ushnaim Lahem uh, Av beitim, and the second one was the Av Betim. Um, and so, very, very, uh, you know, very, very interesting um, uh, Mishnah. So I'm I'm gonna skip around a little bit on this uh, doc because we're gonna go back to sh- uh, to uh, uh, we'll go back to a second uh, about um, uh, Yehuda ben Tabai because I want to talk about him for a little bit, but later on the Gemara you know basically uh, says the following right I'm Rav bar Abba i Rabbi Yochanan so Rav shemin bar Abba says the name Rav Yochanan I'm skipping that this is like middle to bottom of Amud Bet Shavut Kalabe Nacha. Don't think that a shavut, right? In other words, a rabbinic prohibition about Shabbat or Yom Tov should never seem minor to you, okay? Because the, the issue of smicha not being prohibited on a Yom Tov is nothing more than a rabbinic prohibition, okay? Which is, again, we see that in the Mishnah in Beitza and Dap, and Amud um, Bet, right? It gives the activities that we don't do because of shavut. the Mishnah there, right? Not climbing a tree on Shabbat or Yom Tov and not riding an animal. So the issue of this is really just a rabbinic prohibition. And yet, what does it say? The l'kubah gedolei hador. Even though it seems to be sort of a minor issue, the greats of the generation, right, still disagree about it for, you know, for many, many uh, generations, right? Um, and so then the Gemara says, pshitsa, it's obvious, right, that smicha is only a shvut. So why does Rabbi Yochanan sort of emphasize that? Right. Because he wants to tell us that rabbinic prohibitions about Shabbat, right, that that uh, that are forbidden. They're basically there's there's a mitzvah to perform them. There's a mitzvah to keep them. So the Gemara says, OK, we know that, of course, you have to keep rabbinic prohibitions. So Rabbi Yochanan was saying that to sort of negate uh, the person who says, that it was about the requirement of smicha itself that they disagreed about. Okay, so um, as we talked about, Rabbi Rev- Yossi Bar Yehuda explains, right, that the whole machlokus here about whether chagiga requires smicha at all. Right, there are those who would say that maybe smicha is not performed at all. Um, right, and because it would be like a vol- if it's a voluntary shlumim offering, um, and so actually that's not what they're that what they're trying to say is that's not what the machlokus is about. The machlokus isn't about whether or not you need smicha altogether. The machlokas is about, is whether or not there's an applicable rabbinic prohibition concerning doing smicha on Yom Tov. And that's what Rabbi Yochanan once tells. But the point here is the Gemara is making is that it looks like this is a minor thing, but actually it's a very big machlokas. So very important, Mishnah. This is considered to be (coughs) the first machlokas that ever exists. Um, and just keep this in mind that it's this machlokas over smichai. Now,
0: one of I love that is, language, the first machlokas that ever exists. Like, oh, please. You know, like, it, I, I'm not, well, I'm not, not it is, but if you look something. at it
1: historically, it is the first time that we see I it mean, with the generations of the Zugod. And it's interesting in, to see that in, like in, once we introduce multitude of leadership, right, two leaders, then we have machlokas. Like, it's basically saying, right, way. but we you also have, have everyone tor- agree about everything. And it's okay, mm-hmm. the system's built that way.
0: I understand, and I agree with you, and this is essential in the discussion of the zugot and rabbinic law. But it's not as if there was no machloket in the in the desert, in the wilderness, when B'nai Israel were making their way from Egypt to the Promised Land, right? Meaning, there's always been machloket. The, you know, right. this is right, right, right. yes. that like people
1: correct, Matt. that you're correct. That now I just want to conclude with a quick who's who. So I would encourage everybody to spend some time today, you know, going through that Mishnah and look up all of the zugot. Uh, you know, uh, there's tons of information on the web. Uh, Rabbi Benny Lau has a great book about the sages that goes through all of their biographies and personalities. We obviously don't have time to do that. But the one that I do want to spend time on is Yehuda ben Tabai, who they do spend time on on this stuff. I'm not going to read the story inside, but, you know, he's of the third generation with Shimon ben Shetach Remember that during the time of Shimon ben Shetach and Yehuda ben Tabai, right, Shimon ben Shetach was, remember, Shlom Sion's sister, brother. And that was that whole story we learned previously about yet the king and I and he killed all of the sages. So really what was going on in their particular time when they were living Yehuda ben Tabai and Shimon Shetach, is there were a lot of different sects of Judaism, right? They were of the Prushim, the Pharisees. Um, and a lot of what Yehuda ben Tabai did was fight against the Dukin, against the Sadducees. And so what this story is about here is that basically uh, Yehuda Ben-Tabai basically gives the wrong talk about something, right? The law is, is that when you have these cases of false witnesses in a, in a capital case, the false witnesses would only be punished by death if the defendant who they testified against falsely accident well, wrongly got punished by death. But what did he do here? He knew that he had false witnesses and even though the defendant wasn't punished, he still said that that false witness needed to be executed. Um, and basically he then realized that that was wrong and he basically spends the rest of his life sort of having to repent and dealing with the g- regret of the fact that this particularly happened. And, and this is, uh, but he was so opposed to the Sudukin that it almost seems like maybe there was like an error in judgment and that's what happened to him. The other thing that you just need to know about him is, is that in some medieval scholarship, Yehuda Ben-Tabai is actually associated with the beginning of the Kararites, Right the group of Jews who only believed in Torah Tav, The idea being that sort of Shimon ben Shetach, by strengthening the Sanhedrin, brought about uh, Torah Sheba Whereas, whereas uh, Yehuda ben Tabai really focused on the Torah So that's the other thing, just to know about him. He's a first, uh, he lives in the first century BCE. Um, and just, this is one of the, you know, the famous stories by, you know, where we get any information about him at all, but just to know that sort of his lifelong struggle was against the Tsedukim, but it's sort of it, it's interesting. Like as much as yes, the rabbis were anti-Tsedouki, this is a story that sort of doesn't have such a nice ending, uh, you know, with with this uh uh you know with with his you know case or or his trying to fight against the Tsedukim.
0: I think it also illustrates just the responsibility of what it means to be a judge and to assess these cases, the the capital cases in particular. And you know, the, the humanity of the judge who sits in that case and then can make an error or feels that he makes an error and how that affects him personally. um, The system of law is not a computer, right? Like, I think that's an important sidebar kind of point that comes out of this.
1: Yeah, I think that's also true, right? And again, I want to just emphasize, like, when we think about yesterday's stuff with Acher, this stuff with Yehuda Ben-Tabai, like, the Gemara does not censor itself. It is willing to tackle difficult situations that they find Chazal in. And, you know, it's not all like they were the most amazing people who always made the best decisions. The Gemara really tells us there's what to learn from any anything that happens to us in
0: life. That's our tough Discussion for the day. Thank you for joining us. Rank us, review us where you get your podcast. Come talk to us on our Facebook page and tell us what you think about this stuff. Thank you to Rabideep Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Until tomorrow, go and learn.